uh, I'm going to start going through the book of James. That's going to be the next series that I do, and um, it's, it's a very practical book, and I think that we're in need, I am in need of some practical application of Scripture in my life. So that's, that's the direction that I believe God has led me to. So we're going to start that today, but I'd like to go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Lord, I thank you this morning. What a blessing to be here. Uh, what a blessing it has been, God, to worship you in, in a Sunday school class this morning and to hear truth taught that is against everything the world wants to give us and yet to see how we can stand solid on your word. Uh, just a blessing, and I, I just I praise you for that. I praise you for the songs that we sang. A few of them are, remind me of years ago when I was first saved. And it, God, what a just what a testimony! What a powerful thing to remember back to salvation and what you did and how you pulled me out of my sin. And Lord, it's just a blessing. I thank you for our musicians and our singers and their faithfulness to lead us in those songs. I pray now as we go to your word that we would worship you through that as well. And I pray, God, that you would help us to see what you were speaking through James and to just teach us to apply it in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so the book... The book of James, written by James. So there's a big revelation. But no, there, there's, a, there's, there's about four different Jameses mentioned in the New Testament. This one particular is written by the oldest brother of Jesus. So this is a, this is a guy, this is a man who grew up with Jesus in the same household, the same earthly parents, Joseph and Mary, as Jesus. Um, he is listed first when you see the, the list of his brothers in Matthew. He's listed first, so it probably means that he's the oldest brother of Jesus. Not his older brother, as Jesus was obviously the firstborn, but he was the next one born from what we can see. Um, early on, if you look at John chapter 7... John chapter 7, verse 2, it shows us that Jesus, or that James did not believe in Jesus at the beginning here. When Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, ministry it says, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. This is chapter 7, verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. So James, the writer of this book, grew up with the Messiah. But yet here they are as adults and he doesn't believe in him. Um, now, obviously, later there was a change, or else we wouldn't have this book written by James. But there is a there is a quick lesson to be learned in that, because I still think, and I still come across people 
who somehow think you're born into Christianity. You are born into Christianity. It's when you're born again. When you are born into a Christian family, that does not make you a Christian. And my dad was a pastor or my grandpa was a preacher or my mother taught Sunday school or any of those things. My grandma knows more about the Bible than anybody doesn't get anybody saved. I mean, if anybody could have been saved that way, it would have been the people who grew up with Jesus Christ. But here he was. He was an unbeliever in the book of John. So obviously he was later born again and he became a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. So he was right there in the hub where it all started. He was one of the prominent leaders. Paul called him a Peter, I mean, a pillar in the book of Galatians, um, along with Peter and John. So he was one of the main guys in the church at Jerusalem. And according to Galatians 1.19, James, Paul calls him there an apostle. Um, so that's who wrote the book. He wrote it to... The 12 tribes scattered abroad, as we'll see as we get into the first verse. So most likely who he's writing this to, it appears that it's Christians. So it's, and this is early in the church. This is probably before, while the church was still prominently Jews. And what probably happened was in Acts 12, if you read Acts 12, with all the persecution that started coming down on the church, the church was scattered. They had to flee Jerusalem in order to stay alive, basically, right? So they're all scattered out through the world, and he's writing to these Christians that are scattered abroad. Um, and as a result of them being mostly Jewish, the book still has a very Jewish nature to it. You can, you can see Judaism. There's lots of references to the Old Testament um, it's a little different than some of Paul's writings because of that, but yet it's still very extremely applicable um, in our lives. It's very practical in its content, focusing on godly living. And that's it. that is the main focus of the book is how are we to live now that we've been saved. Because of that, there's some interpretive challenges that we'll get into as you've probably known, it's interesting. I was talking about a legalistic background. As a legalist, I loved the book of James because it, you can twist it and make it seem like it's a work salvation type of thing. But I don't believe that's at all what it is. And we'll get into that as we go through the book. But it is very much about how do we live? How do we take this doctrine? How do we take this knowledge of our God and now go forth in our lives? And so that, that's kind of a quick introduction. And having said that, I want to go ahead and let's just look at what James wrote to the church. Starts out, verse 1, James 1, one, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant and of, the Lord, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the, in the dispersion. Greetings, he says. Now, I just gave you the credentials of James. Does anybody ever name drop in here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, are, aren't we, do we not do that? Or do, do, is there any, in Christianity today, is there any emphasis put on your credentials as pastors? 
Yes, as preachers, as whoever it is, professors in seminaries, there seems to be a lot of emphasis on that. And I'm not saying that's all wrong, because sometimes you need to give, why, why should you listen to me? But James here, has, he has a line of credentials. He's a pillar in the original church. He's a pillar in the hub of Christianity. But what does he say? Does he say, James, an apostle? James, the brother of Jesus? That'd be a good name drop, huh? Yeah, that's my brother earthly brother no he says james a bond servant a slave to christ he shows his humility here in the introduction and i think we can learn a lot from that that humility as we go forward with how is one to live humility is going to be extremely important and i, th- I think we need to consider that attitude as we pursue titles, as we pursue positions, um, even as we pursue education, as we pursue anything in our life, we need to know, we need to really look at within and see what our motive is. Do you want to get a college degree or, a, or go farther into college and get a doctorate degree or whatever it is so that you'll have a title? Or is it so that you can learn more knowledge so that you can better serve God? That's important to understand. It's important to examine yourself and your motives in whatever it is that you are pursuing. The train engineer, he went to school so that he could be called an engineer. Then he could blow a horn. So, obviously... There's nothing wrong with going to college. There's nothing wrong with getting degrees. There's nothing wrong with furthering your education or getting positions. You want to be a pastor. Is it so that you can really shepherd God's flock? It's because you have a call on your life or is it so that you can have a a prominent position so people will call you pastor? I mean, and it doesn't just apply within Christendom. That, That is within anybody's life. Why do you want to be a doctor? Is it so that you can be important in this world and people will call you doctor? And, or is it so that you can help people? And that, that can be applied to anything. But as we see with James here, who is obviously prominent, who is obviously important on this world, but yet his humility is what we see come forward in his writing here. Verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, keep in mind here, and this, this reminds me some similar to the book of Peter. Peter was dealing with a similar situation, a highly persecuted group of people. James is writing this to the scattered tribes abroad. We see that and we don't, we don't think a lot about it. But it would be like this, similar to this. We have this group of people here. Although in Jewish customs, and especially in that time, Family was probably more important than we can even realize. Maybe Landon might get it more than anybody. They, they have extremely close bonds with their family, and I love it. But in this culture, that was it. I mean, you, you grew up together. You stayed together. And what happened was the, the persecution of Herod comes in and starts killing people, starts putting people in prison as the time when... Peter got thrown in prison, 
and miraculously the angel came and got him out. It was all during that time. But this group of people that you've known your entire life, everything you've ever known, now you have to run. And you're going to be scattered. And, the people, and, and it's not like today. You can't FaceTime. You don't know if the people on the other side of this room survived or not, right? Or communication is difficult at the time, especially within Christians because they're persecuting Christians. They're trying to find you. So you're in hiding, and you're scattered around, and everything you've ever known, your business, your livelihood, your family, your friends, all that security is gone. And he says, count it all joy. It kind of brings that into context more, right? It kind of brings our trials into context more as well. He says, count it all joy. Look at Acts 5, verse 40. The apostles knew this well. The apostles had been preaching the gospel. And it says, at this, they yielded to Gamaliel, and they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Now, Gamaliel had just stepped in and saved their lives. They were going to just kill them. But he had said, hey, we don't, if these guys really are of God, we don't want to mess with them. So they yielded to him, and they called the apostles in and had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. So they had been arrested, put right at the face of death. And then been flogged. And this was not like a slap on the wrist. When they flogged people, they did it. It was extremely painful. And what did they do? In verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. For the name of Christ, they rejoiced that they had been suffered worthy. So James is saying here, all of this persecution count it all joy that is a lot easier said than done and it's got to be by the power of the holy spirit that it happens but that's the instruction that's what we have and it's not just the persecution he says when you meet trials of various kinds now the the specific thing they were dealing with was persecution at the time but he's saying all kinds of trials and then if you look at verse three we're going to see why he says this for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So why do you count it all joy? Do you count it all joy because you know that your faith will endure through it? No. Is it because you know you will have steadfastness in these trials? No, that's not the answer. It's not because you will have steadfastness. The answer, the reason you count it all joy is because the trials produce steadfastness. He's very clear about this. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. They don't reveal your steadfastness. They don't reveal your perseverance. They produce it. These trials increase your faith. These trials give you perseverance. We believe that he who endures to the end will be saved, right? We believe that he who has begun a good work in you will finish it. We quote that a lot. Here's the thing that we don't hear so much is the way he's going to finish it, the way he's going to complete your faith is by trials. 
of various kinds. And he's going to give you the power to do that. He's going to give you the power to count it all joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. This is Paul talking. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We see the apostles counting it joy when they're flogged and told not to preach anymore. We see Paul here at the brink of death, thought he was dying, and now he's glorifying God for the, all the trials that he had was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then verse 4, go back to James Verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So you see the combination here. The trials produce steadfastness. Let the trials come. And let the steadfastness have its full effect that you may be full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Lacking nothing. So for us to reach maturity, for us to become complete in Christ, we must have steadfastness in Christ. We must have perseverance in Christ. The only way we can get that perseverance is by trials. Is this practical? Does anybody have trials? I would be willing to say that I'm sure all of you have trials of various kinds right now. Some of them different. Some of them may seem more severe. You may be thinking, well, my trials, I don't really have. But we all have them. I was thinking the other day, I was thinking about our college students. And, well, actually, I was thinking it started with high school students. And I was watching them and how they deal with stress. And and you think, that's not even stressful. Whatever they're dealing with, it's, it's it's not, I mean. And I look at my kids and it's the same thing. But here's the thing. It is stressful for them. Whatever the things that they go through, at whatever stage in your life, it may not, like was looking back, it may not seem that stressful, but we've been through it. We survived, and we had steadfastness given to us from that. They're still in that period where they're gaining that steadfastness. College, the same way. I remember, I remember that feeling of stress in college. You know, when you got a test looming down, and you got to go to work, and you... And you got this pressure coming from here and there, and you don't have any money, and all of those things. I remember it. It's real. It's a real trial. But you compare that to somebody laying, you know, with a loved one on their deathbed. It's probably not as stressful, right? It's probably not a trial. But he says trials of various kinds. And he's going to use them all. So when you get yourself in those places, when you find those, when you find yourself in those places, consider this. Meditate on this scripture and count it joy because on the other side of that trial is more perseverance in Christ. And the blessings await. And you can be joyful in that. James is a practical writer, isn't he? As I was studying this, it's just. I mean, because here's the truth. Here's the truth. It was only about 
I don't know, two, three weeks ago, I had one of those times, one of those days where the trials are just seem like they're hitting you from all kinds of sides. And I did not meditate on James. I did not meditate on Scripture, and I didn't go to prayer. Instead, I have like a little fit. Praise God, nobody was around to see it. But I have this fit, you know, and it's like, no, no, go through it and rejoice in the fact that he is giving you this to teach you. And then in, in, in verse 5, he kind of changes a little bit, but it's still going right along in the same direction. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So if you consider this in context of the first four verses, he's talking about the godly wisdom which will, rejo- which will lead us to rejoice in these trials. All right, if you keep this in context, how do we rejoice in trials? How do we get to that point that the apostles were at where they leave after bleeding backs and everything and rejoicing and praising God that they were counted worthy to suffer? How do we get to the place where Paul was where he's on the brink of death and he counts it joy so that he would have to trust God? He took everything else away so that he has to trust God. How do we get to that point? Well, James tells us. He gives us a very simple answer. Ask God. Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. And I would say this godly wisdom that we're talking about here, along with humility that we talked about that James is demonstrating, is one of the characteristics that we're lacking the most in the church today. In Christianity Christianity today, we are lacking this. I examined myself as I'm studying this, and I am lacking this characteristic of godly wisdom. I'm lacking in the fact that I don't ask for it enough. And so I thought about, you know, when we struggle with trials, or when we struggle with making our decisions, maybe our prayers are wrong. I was reading about I was reading Spurgeon and he was talking about how he's real careful when people would come and ask him about who the right person to marry is. And he said because almost every time they already had made up their mind to marry a person and they just needed him to confirm it. So he was real cautious with that. And I think how many times do we go to God with that same attitude? How many times do we go to God with a trial and we want him to fix it? We want him to take it, take it away. God, just remove this from me. But James is saying, have joy in the trial. So our prayer would change, right? If we're asking for godly wisdom the way James is instructing us here, our prayer would change, not take this trial away. Give me the strength to endure this trial. Give me the eyes to see it as you see it, Lord, so that I can rejoice in it, so I can see what's on the other side, so I, I can live with more endurance and more perseverance same with decisions maybe we come to god too many times we already got it figured out and we just want him to say yep we just want him to give his okie dokie i'm guilty and we need to come to him with a complete blank slate and say god what would you have me to do do we lack wisdom i think absolutely i think we lack it we lack it every day But I think the problem is, I know the problem with me is I don't realize it. 
I don't realize I lack wisdom, and therefore I have not because I ask not, because I hadn't read James enough to know that I need to seek God for this godly wisdom. But it says, who gives generously to all. God is the giver of all good things. In nature, providence, and grace, every good and perfect gift comes from Him. And therefore, He and He only should be applied unto for this godly wisdom. But where do we turn? Do we turn to God for our wisdom? It's usually a last resort. It's usually when we are really got ourselves dug into a hole, then we look up. And man, if we would just learn to turn to Him first. It would, it would just be so much better. It would be so much more glorifying to Him. But we turn to all sorts of other things, right? Worldly wisdom, psychology, TV, books, books upon books. Some of them good books, some of them bad books. Family members, unrighteous friends. We get advice from all sorts of people and then we turn to God. But he is the giver of all good things, and we need to turn to him. And then he will answer that prayer. And the good news is he knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves, and he knows that we're going to do this. But yet James still says us, ask for godly wisdom, and he will still be faithful to to give that. And then in verse 6, he says, but let him ask in faith. With no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. I love the imagery here. I mean, can you picture the waves? They come in hard. They come in fast, right? They come in fearlessly ahead. And then the very next instant, what are they doing? They're retreating. Back into the ocean, they're gone. And then here comes, here comes again, right? It's coming in hard, it's coming in fast, fearlessly, like it's unstoppable, and then it's gone. And I think this is how we act a lot of times when we pray. I think this is how we act a lot of times when we pursue God. We can be here on Sunday morning, this is this is me. This is me too many too many times. I'll be here on Sunday morning and I'm yes. I'm coming in hard like a wave. I'm coming in fearlessly. I'm thinking all of these things I'm going to do this week. And Monday morning comes around, and I just don't even want to get out of bed. And I'm like sluggish, and I'm grumpy, and I'm retreating like a wave. But he says, let him ask in faith with no doubting, with no doubting. Spurgeon said this, it is not the kind of faith we ought to have in God. A faith that is very brilliant on the Sunday and very dull on the Monday. A faith that is triumphant after a sermon, but which seems to be defeated when we get into actual trouble. That is so, I mean, I think that is so typical of the human nature. It's so typical of what we're dealing with in our weak Christianity But in verse 7 and 8, he says, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. That person that doubts, that person that that is retreating like a wave, he approaches the prayer with 
it sounds like confidence. He can pray a prayer that sounds like a real prayer, but in his heart, he's already backing up like the wave, disappearing out into the ocean to never be seen again. And he's ta- so he's talking about doubt. And I thought, what about doubt? Is it doubt that God will do this? Is it doubt that he would do this for me? I know he would do it for other people. So there's, there's three different forms of doubt I want to address here this morning. The first one is the truth that many times we pray and ask for, that, that many times that we pray and ask for things that we really do not truly desire. Be honest with yourself here. Have you ever asked for a sin to be taken away, but deep down you hope that it wouldn't be? This is getting, this is kind of hitting home, isn't it? Maybe you haven't. But I, I can, I'll just be honest with you and tell you that I have. Or at least you thought to yourself, maybe, maybe he'll take it away in another week. God, I want to indulge for just a little bit. Um, maybe a month, maybe a year. How many unbelievers, I remember, I remember thinking like this as a young child, as a young man, Thinking, yeah, I want to. I really want to devote my life to the Lord, but I got some, got some living to do. How many times do we make excuses for young people? Well, they're just sowing their wild oats. So I want God to save me, but not quite yet. Not until after I get married and calm down. Then I want God to save me. Or, or. I mean, how many times do we truly pray for something and in the back of our mind, in in the deep sinfulness of our heart, we're hoping that he doesn't take it away or maybe just doesn't take it all away? That's one form of doubt. It's one form of doubt. Another, a second form of doubt is whether God hears their prayers at all. And if that's the doubt that you have, then you have to ask the question, do you even really believe that God is there? Do you even really believe? And we can say, a lot of us can say a lot of things rightly about God. We know who he is according to scripture and we can quote scripture and we can tell you his attributes. But the truth is, do you believe that those are real? Do you believe that he is real? You may say, yeah, I believe in God, but does he really hear my prayers? Or I know God is there. I'm not an atheist, right? I believe God is there. But does he really care about me? I'm so lowly. He doesn't care about me. He may care about Ronnie or or Paul or Nate, but not me. I'm just I'm just a guy. I'm just a girl. I'm nobody. Do we ever think that? Be real. Do you think those things? I think we all probably have those thoughts. But we know that that is not true. So if you're questioning the truth of God and how he answers prayers, you cannot expect to have your prayers answered. He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And the third form of doubt actually starts with good theology. I think this is one that I have struggled with. And, and it is, what it is, is it's reconciling God's sovereignty with prayer. Right? Because once you start to understand this, the attributes of God, He's unchanging. 
his plan is already in place. He, his will will be carried out. And so we're, you, you learn that, okay, I can't change the mind of God with prayer, right? So it's, it's kind of like, what's the point of prayer if God's plan is already determined? That's the question that you would ask, right? Has anybody ever asked that question? Has anybody ever heard that question? What's the point? God's already, God has already planned out his, his decree, so why pray? And listen to this. It's true that God's eternal purpose is fixed. Do not doubt that. But it is equally true that the Lord listens to the voice of a man and that whatever we ask in prayer believing, we shall receive. That sounds like it contradicts itself to a certain extent. The thing is, this is God we're talking about. He's more complex than we can ever imagine. His ways are higher than our ways, and that's what he has told us. We would do ourselves well to remember this. For the man who delights himself in the Lord, God gives the desires of his heart. Pray. Pray believing that God is going to answer that prayer. Now, here's the thing. He's going to give the desires of the heart to a man who keeps the commandments of the Lord, whose desire is the Lord. I mean, do you, do you, have you considered that? The man whose desire is the Lord, the Lord will give him the desire of his heart. It doesn't say the man whose desire is the world, the, the Lord's going to give him the desire of his heart. So if your desire is to be rich, that's not, there's no promise in that. This is where the word of faith movement goes astray. It doesn't say if a man desires to be healthy, God's going to give him the desires of his heart. No, there's no promise of that. Can God heal? Yes. Can God give abundance? Yes. He can also take it away if you're depending on that more than God, as we saw with Paul. But what he does say is if your desire is the Lord, and in our case here, as as we look at this book, as we look at what James is teaching, James has promised that if you lack wisdom, we're talking about godly wisdom here and how to delight in your trials, how to joy in your trials, ask God for it and he will grant it. That is not changing God's mind or his plan. No, this is actually fulfilling God's plan. And if you will bow the knee and humble yourself and ask for this, he will grant it. It's promised. And we need to approach this without doubt. We need to approach this with full belief that God is there and he's everything that we've said he is. He's all the attributes that we've been hearing about and that he can decree this with no problem, but it's all about uh, our heart and how we approach this. And so that's why I'm here. That's why we're going through this. That's why this has been placed on my heart, I think, is so that you can examine your heart, find the areas that need you need to address. You need to address them with God, and you need to ask him for wisdom to overcome that, right? You have doubts. Like I mentioned, the three different forms of doubts. If you have any of those, ask God for wisdom, and he will grant it to you. He's, so it's not changing God's mind. It's actually fulfilling God's eternal decree. That's why we can approach him with confidence. And then in verse 8, and we'll close with verse 8. It says, he is a double-minded man, 
unstable in all his ways. He's talking about the doubter here. And we've all dealt with being double-minded, I think, in our flesh. We're fighting the flesh and the spirit. Um, we've, we've, dealt, we've dealt with doubt in our weaknesses, no doubt. We're not a complete product yet. However, I think he is especially talking to those who are unstable in all their ways. There is no assurance in their heart or mind that their prayers will be answered. This can be seen in a few different ways. The first is a man or woman who can talk a good game, knows all the lingo, can point out the flaws and shortcomings of others. They're usually really good at that. But when when faced with the reality of their own sin, they retreat like the wave on the beach. I've known people like this. Um, Pride is usually evident in this person's life, and eventually the ugly head of unbelief becomes dominant in their life. I hope and I pray that there's nobody like this in this congregation today. I've seen it. Um, I knew a guy that was, he could speak the lingo as good as anybody, liked to watch all the solid preachers, listen to them on the radio, would be going out and doing different types of ministry. And the last I heard, he's a professing atheist engulfed in sin. But as I look back on it, I didn't know it at the time, but as I look back on it, I could see the pride just eating away at him. The ministry was usually somehow about him being in front of people. The lingo was always something about him sounding smart in front of others. And it, it, I didn't see it at the time, but I, I, I can look back and I see it. Examine your hearts and head that one off before it gets to that point. The second person, the double-minded man, the man or woman who have no conviction of doctrine. They have no truth to stand on, but they claim to be a Christian. They're tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine that comes around. They want to jump on this train and jump on that train, and everything that's popular they are on board with. And eventually, when you're tossed to and fro, eventually you get slammed up against rocks or beams or trees or something that is going to batter you. And I pray and hope there's nobody like that in this congregation as well. No, instead of being this double-minded, unstable in all our ways, as I've watched mature Christians in front of me, before me, you start to see what maturity brings within Christianity. There's not a lot of extreme high points like just there's this amazing, oh, wow, God did this. It's so, and there's not any low points with a mature Christian. They stay steady. They're not so shocked when God moves. They're not surprised when he makes a move on a man's heart and he's saved. And But they make no mistake, a mature Christian praises God for those salvations, for those movements, for those things that he does in their lives and other people's lives. But then when it seems like the trials come, they don't fall in that hole. 
They do as James said. They ask for wisdom and they stay solid in their belief. And so they're, they're, that's what we should be seeking after. We should be seeking after that maturity. And it doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. We should be seeking after that maturity and trying to get there quickly. So instead of being double-minded, we should be like the psalmist. If you want to turn to the 86th Psalm. And I'll close with this. The 86th Psalm, starting in verse 10, he says, For you are great. And do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. And will glorify your name forever. Notice that his request to be taught God's way is preceded by the greatness and uniqueness of God. And I think so much of our prayers, instead of asking for this and asking for that, and asking for this and that should be praising Him, glorifying Him. You are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. And then, I mean, that's the start, believing in Him. And then it moves to the request. And what's His request here? This is David writing this psalm. His request isn't, deliver me isn't give me a kingdom isn't give me these things or grant me health no he says teach me your way O lord doesn't that line up with what james has been saying if any lack wisdom let him ask david teach me your way O lord i will walk in your truth unite my heart to fear your name do you think david prayer prayed this prayer believing it the man after god's own heart i think when he prayed he believed that he believed that God would teach him his way. Do you think God answered it? Did God teach David his ways? I think we can see it in the life of David, and we can certainly see it as we read through the Psalms. Yes, he did. It's been established that God will answer this prayer. If any lack wisdom, ask for it, and he will grant it. He did it for David. He will do it for you. He will do it for me. So, and I hope and I pray that our prayers would end the same, he says, and will glorify your name forever. And that's really what it all is about. Why live godly? To glorify him. Why ask for wisdom? To glorify him. And that that's, should be our prayers today and will glorify your name forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I... God, as I, I just would like to follow the pattern of David here and just praise who you are. Your, your deeds are, in fact, wondrous. You have moved on the lives. I mean, just to look at the faces here today and, and think about where they would have been apart from you, where I would have been apart from you. And to see your wondrous deeds of salvation on the lives of these. And now I ask God that you would grant us wisdom. 
you would grant us wisdom beyond our years, that you would grant us wisdom that would give us the ability to endure trials, not only endure them, but to find joy in them. And I pray, God, for each one here, whatever trials that they are in the middle of, whatever trials that may be coming their way, that they would seek wisdom and that they would find joy in those trials and that in doing so, it would be glorious. It would be glorious for your name and that that would be our prayer of all, that we would seek to glorify you. And in, your, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.